and welcome to Skeptically Curious. I'm your host, Ryan Rutherford. This is a podcast where I endeavor to know more and think better by talking to knowledgeable guests about fascinating topics. So please join me on this journey of exploration and edification. One might intuitively assume the term science-based medicine represents something of a tautology. After all, shouldn't all medicine be science-based? As you will hear in the discussion that follows, the answer is not necessarily so straightforward. For this episode, I was joined by Dr. David Gorski, the managing editor and prolific writer at one of my favorite sites, Science-Based Medicine, which was founded by an iconic luminary in the field of scientifically informed skepticism, Dr. Stephen Novella, host of the popular long-running podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Under normal circumstances, science-based medicine would be an invaluable resource in debunking quackery and promoting scientific understanding. But during the COVID pandemic, this platform has become nothing short of indispensable, encountering the deluge of disinformation to which we have been subjected alongside the actual virus, including conspiracies about the virus's origins and insane conjectures regarding vaccines. In light of so much bad information out there, and also by virtue of the consistently high writing quality and expertise provided, I cannot recommend science-based medicine enough, and so was exceedingly pleased to be able to interview one of its leading contributors. Dr. Gorski earned his MD at the University of Michigan and a PhD in cellular physiology at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. He is both a professor of surgery at Wayne State University as well as a surgical oncologist at the Barbara Ann Carmanos Cancer Institute where he specializes in breast cancer surgery. In addition to his demanding day job and impressively productive output at science-based medicine, Dr. Gorski also maintains a personal blog called Respectful Insolence. Near the beginning of our conversation, I asked Dr. Gorski for his view on the scientific method and how skepticism is one of its central characteristics. I then probed my guest to explain the meaning of science-based medicine. He pointed out how science-based medicine is related to, but still in important respects distinct from, evidence-based medicine, which is itself a fairly new approach dating back only a few decades. We discussed an excellent essay from earlier this year in which he argued that all examples of science denial are essentially a form of conspiracy thinking. While his argument is largely persuasive, I ventured to propose a yet deeper analytical layer involving the high degree of religiosity in American society as compared to other developed nations that serves as another crucial driver for the pervasive conspiratorial ideation so prevalent in the United States. Dr. Gorski pushed back a bit against my thesis, but I still maintain that a faith-based epistemology is by its very nature one without the necessary evidentiary and critical thinking constraints, and therefore can so easily give rise to delusions of many kinds, as is so regularly apparent both in the US and across the world. We then spoke about the highly frustrating asymmetry between those trying to assiduously gather reliable information and rectify inaccuracies and those who effortlessly churn out misleading and false claims. Dr. Gorski mentioned Brandolini's law, which states that it takes an order of magnitude more to refute bullshit than it does to create bullshit. 
that perfectly summarizes this dilemma, and one the COVID pandemic has brought into horribly stark relief. I asked him about his first forays into skepticism in the late 1990s, when he grappled with Holocaust deniers, a singularly repellent subspecies of anti-science conspiracy peddling specimens, before moving on to discussing fallacious ideas about COVID-19, the anti-vaccine movement, the breakthrough new mRNA technology used in some COVID vaccines, the efficacy of vaccines developed against the virus, and the often unethical behavior of pharmaceutical companies witnessed during an unprecedented global pandemic. We also spoke about how the Republican Party has become the party of choice for anti-vaxxers, some prominent figures in this movement, including Mike Adams of Natural News Infamy and Joseph Merkler, what might motivate these players, and ways to counter the tidal wave of irrationality, idiocy, disinformation, and propaganda to which we are incessantly subjected, particularly on social media. In light of this seemingly inexorable multi-pronged tsunami of lunacy, I averred that we sadly appear to live in an age of endarkment, rather than one of enlightenment. Please note that as this conversation was recorded on the eve of America's Memorial Day weekend a few months ago, some of the information is now out of date. Nevertheless, most of the broader issues we discuss, and even some specifics on the vaccines, are still relevant. I really enjoyed this wide-ranging discussion and hope you will as well. If you find this podcast valuable in any way, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts and help to spread the word among friends and family. For those feeling especially generous, there is a Patreon page where donations can be made. Thank you to everyone who has listened to Skeptically Curious so far, and I really hope you will continue doing so. With that, I give you Dr. David Gorski. Welcome to Skeptically Curious, Dr. David Gorski. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Thanks a lot, Dr. Gorski. I'm so glad that our schedule is finally just call, just call me David. The Dr. Gorski thing <laughs> is just... <laughs> All right. Thank you, David. So maybe to start off with, if you can give us some insight into your background. Of course, I'm sure it will dovetail with much of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, what would you like to know? Start it. <laughs> Where should I start? Well, maybe educational background and then professional posts you've occupied. Okay, well, so I am a surgical oncologist and a uh, scientist at Wayne State University and the Carmanos Cancer Center in Detroit. I have an MD and a PhD. I got my uh, MD from the University of Michigan, my PhD from Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland in uh, molecular physiology, but it's basically molecular biology. I'm currently professor at Wayne State. My specialty is breast cancer surgery, at least in terms of the clinic. In terms of research, I've been all over the place over the years, but right now I'm interested in a couple of areas. Uh, one is the uh, glutamate signaling as a, as a target for breast cancer treatment, and the and other is um, I've increasingly become interested in epidemiology and disparities in cancer care. I've run a couple of, or I've, I've been, I shouldn't say I've run, I've been like the uh, second in command for a statewide quality improvement project, which unfortunately I am no longer. And I've all, you know, I've had a number of other issues. 
lately I've been trying to think of ways to turn my skeptical activities into something that can actually get me academic credit, which is not as straightforward <laughs> as it sounds, like publishing and all, all of that. And of course, you're the co-founder, along with Dr. Stephen Novella, of Science-Based Medicine. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm the, I'm right now. I'm the managing editor. He's the founder. I don't know that I could say I co-founded it. I was one of the founding bloggers that he invited, and mm-hmm. eventually ended up, you know, being managing editor, which is basically. What am I going? What am, what am I going to say to Harriet Hall about what she should and shouldn't write about, or, or Steve, for instance? You know, I, it's more herding the cats and trying to make sure there's a post every day, and also trying to get through some, you know, guest posts. You know, which is which is hard. It's hard to find good guest posts. Although I must say, it's an excellent website and an absolutely invaluable resource. I think, but it it would be generally so, but it's become during the COVID era, I think, completely invaluable. So I'll definitely be linking to that and trying to promote that in the show notes and in my introduction. And I've really enjoyed your post. We're going to be talking more about that. But just out of interest, a kind of a practical question, how is it that someone like yourself, who's a doctor, also a researcher, is able to uh-huh. be so immensely productive? You you write not only for science-based medicine, but you have your own blog, Respectful um, Insights. Which well, yeah, that, that's, a, that's an interesting, you know, I, I will note that I'm less productive at the blogging than I was in the past. I used to be able to generate a post pretty much every day, and now I'm down to like two or three times a week. But it's difficult, it, dedication, time commitment, a little insanity, maybe a little obsessive compulsiveness. <laughs> um, I don't know how else to explain it. Because, I mean, even that last little bit of you trying to, in a way, be a bit self-deprecating. I mean, most people, the idea of two, three uh, blog posts, uh, even with a job, even with a job that wouldn't be very, as demanding as yours, would be well, too 10 much. 10 or 15 them. years ago, I was doing like five to seven a week. So wow. <laughs> it, was, it was insane. You know, I, I think it was a bit insane. Maybe it's aging. It may, you know, maybe, I, I, you know, I'm not quite as, maybe I've sought a little more balance in life. I don't know. Uh, but it, I generally manage about three a week now between you know science-based medicine and respectful insulins. So I think you've gone from super superhuman to now you're just merely a superhuman. So uh, well, I mean, I suppose you could say that. On the other hand, the problem is during the COVID pandemic, the amount of misinformation out there has multiplied exponentially. So like, as I've slowed down a bit, I think just for my own sanity, the number of of topics has risen a lot. Mm. But I think people should also know those who haven't read your pieces that many of them are very lengthy and detailed. So when we say blog posts, they're very often lengthy. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm kind of known for verbosity. Yes. But it's, I, know, but I don't know I, if that's I, good or bad. Sometimes I think sometimes it's bad because I think sometimes people don't don't actually finish mm-hmm. the post. You know, when you, when you get out to like the five thousand word post, uh, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, I don't know. It, it is what it is, and and I, to be honest, it would take me longer to edit them down. So mm-hmm. as long as people still read them and don't mind, I guess I keep doing it the way I'm doing it. But yeah, it costs your productivity in even better light. Now, just I've asked most of my guests, and particularly ones who are scientists and academics, and I think it's particularly germane to this conversation. How would you define the scientific method and then relate that to the kind of skepticism, which is what I'm trying to promote with this podcast, that is inherent to the scientific method? And, you know, we could, we could go on. I mean, the scientific method, 
and I'll probably end up sounding vague or something like that, but I mean, the scientific method essentially is a systematic way of asking questions about how, I guess, the universe works. And you could, I mean, whether you view it as falsifying hypotheses, you know, as one end of it, or if you have a, a somewhat more expansive definition, the, the idea is to produce generalizable knowledge and principles that have predictive power about like, how the universe works, I guess. I guess is if, how you want to put it or, you know, and obviously for me, that's in, you know, mainly biology, cell biology, molecular biology, but, you know, any scientist is looking for general principles that explain how nature works. And then and, the role of, sorry, the, the role of. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, just because, you know, and we're going to be discussing denialists and conspiracy thinking mm -hmm. is that theory is different when a scientist uses it than in common parlance. Right. So the notion of skepticism as being part of the scientific method? Yes, I mean, everything in science is up for question. Mm -hmm. You know, every conclusion of science is provisional now. The issue there, of course, is how provisional. I mean, mm -hmm. there's provisional you know, there's really certain, you know, that's with a really tiny bit of uncertainty versus, you know, you know, more provisional, you know, the cutting edge science is the more provisional, you know, it's the stuff that's likely to be, you know, found to be incorrect or in or grossly incomplete. Whereas, you know, if you look at something like a lot of basic fundamentals of physics, I like to use the example, for instance, of relativity, classical mechanics, you know, which was what physics was before relativity still works. It's a, it's a, it's a very, very good approximation mm. that only starts to fall apart when you get close to velocities at the speed of light. Mm. I mean, when, when they're doing, you know, when they're sending rockets into orbit, they're still using classical mechanics. You know, they don't, mm. the, the relativistic corrections are generally pretty small, but mm. you know, when you get anywhere, you know, when you start getting into significant fractions of the speed of light, then you need to use, you know, relativity. Basically, what I'm saying is, you know, did relativity render classical mechanics wrong? No. It showed that classical mechanics are, an, are a very good approximation at velocities that people hundreds of years ago could, could actually measure and observe compared to now when, you know, you can measure things much more precisely and you can actually detect speeds. I mean, velocities and speed, you know, a physicist would not be happy with me for saying that. But, you know, at velocities, as you know, that start to get up to significant fractions of the speed of light. Yes. Uh, so in other words, you know, science tends to build on things and it, it's pretty uncommon for a new theory, and we'll get to theory in a second, for a new theory to completely overturn an old one, they usually there's a, there's a a deficiency in the old one that the new one explains and usually yes. and the old one is often found to be you know a subset or you know a special case of the new more general one which is why I like to use relativity and, and but it, but getting back to theory I mean in science theory or well in popular usage theory is like a guess hmm. or I shouldn't say a guess but like theory in science is basically has a very high degree of certainty. It's like the best explanation we currently have, you know, the theory of evolution, the theory of, you know, relativity, germ theory, that, you know, those are, those are like the current best explanations. And in other words, they have a pretty high degree of certainty, at least as much as we can manage. Mm -hmm. Whereas in popular parlance, theory, the word theory tends to mean 
like a guess or, you know, uh, just an idea, a, a, a guess. What, you know, lay people tend to mean when they say theory is closer to what scientists mean when they say hypothesis. Yes. You know, it's like a statement that is uncertain and needs to be tested. Hmm. Yeah, those are very important distinctions. I mean, that, that's where you get all these, you know, these various science deniers hmm. saying, oh, or like, you know, my favorite creationist saying, evolution is just a theory. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. And I, I uh, interviewed Dr. Ken Miller last week, and, and we definitely unpacked that. As I mean, just a theory. It, that's like, I mean, a theory is in science is has a pretty high degree of certainty. Yes. And ba basically, a theory is our current best understanding of a certain question. <laughs> It is one of the great misconceptions. Now, on this question, though, and, and as I said, that very fine website that everyone should read diligently every week, Science-Based Medicine, is that to people hearing not just about the website, but about the concept will maybe find it at first blush to be, or at first glance, to be somewhat tautological, because shouldn't all medicine be science-based? But of course, there's a history there that, that wasn't always the case. So if you could discuss maybe the origins of the website, but also the concept concept of science-based medicine, which actually isn't all that old. Uh, so, I mean, evidence-based medicine, the whole concept or the framework of evidence-based medicine is actually not that old either. Mm. It, it dates back to like the 80s and the 90s. Mm. So, you know, maybe it's 30 years old, give or take. But the idea was that, you know, medicine should be based in the best evidence. Mm. But what's the difference between evidence, you know, which seems obvious, but we have all sorts of puns or, or quips about other forms of medicine other than evidence-based, you know, such as eminence-based medicine, you know, what does you know, this professor say, or, you know, that's, that sort of thing. Or there's anecdote-based medicine, which is what a lot of what was going on, you know, before was. And evidence-based medicine is very good. I mean, it has a, a certain hierarchy of evidence, you know, like from basically, you know, basic science observations to observations in people and going up the chain to, you know, you know, case series, uh, you know, with the highest form of evidence being, you know, the, the well-designed, randomized, controlled, placebo, you know, preferably placebo-controlled clinical trial. And beyond that, you know, meta-analyses, you know, of, of these clinical trials. But what... People like Steve Novella and others noted, noted about evidence-based medicine is that there's a blind spot. Evidence-based medicine basically seems it deprioritizes basic science. How so? That seems well. Well, well let's put it that. Well, let's put it this way: basic science observations are at the lowest end of the scale, which is appropriate in most cases. But there's a special case where basic science alone is enough to Oh, how do I want to put this? Where basic science alone can tell you that a treatment can't work. In other words, the issue of prior plausibility based on basic science is not really considered in the evidence-based medicine framework. It should be. Science-based medicine should be the same thing as evidence-based medicine, mm -hmm. but in practice, it's not really. So like an example, homeopathy, the one we all love to, <laughs> to point to. You can say from the principles of homeopathy alone, you know, the, the claim that, you know, dilution, you know, the more you dilute something, the stronger it gets, for instance, and that you can dilute something beyond Avogadro's number, like many, many times beyond Avogadro's number, uh, to the point where if you actually did dilute something that much, there would, it would be unlikely that a single molecule of the substance mm -hmm. even remained in the, in the mixture. You can refute homeopathy basically 
on basic science grounds alone, you don't really need to do clinical trials, you know, uh, because the principles behind homeopathy violate, you know, multiple laws of chemistry and physics. And as I like to say, for homeopathy to work, huge swaths of of well-established science would have to be not just wrong, but spectacularly wrong. <laughs> yeah. So you might wonder why skeptics keep harping on homeopathy. It's for that reason. So what about all these so supposedly positive studies of homeopathy? You know, I, I like to view them as an excellent lens that bring into that brings into focus, you know, the problems with clinical trials because you know randomized clinical trials are not perfect, obviously. First of all, there's, you know, the 95% confidence interval, which is what everyone uses, you would expect by random chance alone that 5% of trials would be positive. It's actually more than that because nobody can do, you know, a perfect trial. Hmm. So if you do like 100 trials of homeopathy, at least five of them will appear to be positive. And, you know, those are the ones that homeopaths point to, (laughs) of course. Hmm. It's actually more than that because, you know, there's bias, there's confounders that you may not have latched onto or or Hmm. taken into account. There are all those sorts of things. So clinical trial, I like to say randomized clinical trials are not perfect, but they're, they're currently, you know, about the mm. best we can manage. Mm. Another good example of a treatment that can basically be dismissed without having to subject it to all these <laughs> clinical trials, energy medicine. Okay, Reiki. Okay. The idea that you can, you know, just like put your hand over someone and that, you know, it often doesn't, it doesn't even involve touch, you know, I mean, yes. therapeutic touch, you could, I guess you could call a subset of Reiki, but you know, where you could put your hand over, the per, you know, the person and, you know, sometimes it involves saying things or, you know, you know, we already know enough to say that Reiki is hmm. basically impossible. I like to, I liken Reiki to faith healing, except that it uses a different religious framework than the traditional, you know, Judeo-Christian religious framework that we're familiar with here, you know, in the U.S. and in, in Europe, you know, behind faith healing. You know, it's basically laying on of hands. I mean, you know, just think of it this way. The idea behind Reiki is that there is some quote unquote, universal source Mm -hmm. is what they call it. You know, the universal source of some sort of healing energy that the Reiki master will channel through himself into, you know, the recipient and thereby somehow heal. Hmm. Well, what does that sound like? The force. In Christian tradition. Well, okay, the force, okay, the force. (laughs) I'll I'll give you that one, the force. (laughs) But I was thinking more distant. I was thinking, you know, Further back than that, I was thinking, you know, faith, Christian faith healing. Mm, yes, exactly. <laughs> and when you say when you, when you tell, say it like that, you know, people start, you know, becoming a little more skeptical. Now, I like to say with Reiki that it's more so much more like religion than it is like any sort of actual treatment. That I don't really have an objection to Reiki masters coming in the hospital as long as they're not recommend mm. as long as they're not represented as healthcare professionals. So that's an interesting overlap between new age and old age coming together. I also really appreciate that distinction about the notion of evidence and then a more fundamental level of of science base. That really clarified in my mind because I often see those as synonymous. So thank you so much. They should be synonymous. Okay. This is the whole point of of the blog. They should be synonymous, but in practice they are not. But it's really important to have that framework to make us even more more alert. Um, And I mean, I think, oh, I'm sorry, I was going to say, and I mean, I think we've made some progress in that 
there have been, you know, people behind science, you know, behind evidence-based medicine who have started to admit that plausibility, you know, the idea is you need to consider prior plausibility based on basic science principles. And and if the basic science principles say that a treatment is impossible (laughs) and it's based on well-established science, not like, Mm. you know, less established science, then there's no point doing clinical trials. You know, it's like, unless some new evidence that shows that this treatment is not as implausible as, you know, what I like to say is for homeopathy to work, huge swaths of Mm -hmm. physics and chemistry that we take for granted as being well-established would have to be not just wrong, but spectacularly wrong, you know, for homeopathy to work. So yeah, there's just no chance of its viability, whatever p-values some studies might evince with some p-hacking, I guess. All right, now, yeah, sorry, just to continue the theme here of general frameworks before we move into some specifics. So you wrote a very fascinating blog post earlier this year, I believe in January, that you actually discussed on another podcast, which I found very intriguing Mm -hmm. and insightful. It was building on what your colleague Stephen Avella had written about the challenges to the encouragement of vaccine hesitancy from conspiracy thinking. And you then made the point in this blog post about how all forms of science denial are essentially conspiracy thinking. So if you could lay out your thesis in that post. Okay, so basically, here, here's the idea. And if you think about it, I'm sure someone will try to, someone will try to give me a counter argument. But every time they do, I've always been able to find the conspiracy mm-hmm. theory. Basically, here's the idea. All science denial, whatever form it is, climate change, you know, human induced climate change, vaccines, um, evolution, etc., all are based in one or more conspiracy theories. So that's the idea. And you can always find it. And, 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 there, and it's really, it tends to be a conspiracy theory of, or of very few forms, if not just one form. It, it all boils down to someone, as in they, uh, are keeping the evidence that, you know, the science denial, deniers' ideas have merit from you. You know, so... I think Kevin Trudeau's book from like 15 or 20 years ago, you know, natural cures that they don't want you to know about pretty much sums it up. It's the idea that there are these, you know, that these science denialists ideas would be more widely accepted, except they don't want you to know about it. They are suppressing the evidence for it. They are suppressing the evidence against the conventional viewpoint And, and once you get that idea in your head, it doesn't take very long to start seeing that in just about every form of science denial. And I've yet to find a form that doesn't have that element. And it's usually the main element. I mean, we've seen it during the pandemic. Um, you know, there's, the, you know, they, you would know the truth that COVID is, is no, no worse than the flu and that, you know, the vaccines are dangerous if it weren't for, you know, Bill Gates, you know governments, the World Health Organization, etc., you know, they don't want you to know the truth. Mm-hmm. And every so often, someone will come up to me with some form of science denial and try to say, you know, um, there's no conspiracy theory here. I can always find it. <laughs> it's like, you don't have to push high. And it yeah. isn't usually very difficult. But it, uh, you know, evolution, evolution is, you know, evolution's another good one. You know, the atheist scientists don't want you to know the truth. You know, it, it, there's, it, it, that's there. I mean, it goes into other areas too. I mean, 9-11 truth, for instance, you know, 
they are hiding the truth about 9-11, that it was an inside job, mm. or, you know, that there were controlled explosions, you know. That... Yes, I thought that was an excellent piece and profoundly important to tie together what often appear to be on the surface disparate phenomena. And, but, and moon hoaxers, there you go. Even there's another one. That's like yeah. one of my favorites. I can't figure out how they could have done it, but, you know, it's, yeah. they don't want you to know the truth, obviously. Well, now, yeah, that's definitely a piece I will link to and, uh, again, encourage all listeners to read. Now, I agree with you, and as it, the case you lay out is very convincing, and you've just pointed out that it's almost uh, always possible to find the conspiratorial underbelly, but I'm wondering about a deeper layer, if you'll allow me to kind of lay this out, and then I, I'd like sure. your opinion, which is that it can't have escaped your notice and many other thoughtful people that the United States, among developed countries, that's, of course, to whom it, it should be compared to, is the most religious of society. So you've mentioned faith, healing, and evolution. And so to me, it's not incidental that the United States is an outlier so far as religiosity is concerned. And yet it also is the epicenter, again, among the developed countries of conspiratorial thinking, a lot of immense delusion and rationality. And so, you is know, it things though? like evolution. I would push back a little bit on that. Is it though? Is it, it really? Definitely is. It, it, if you look at the, the Pew, I mean, it, my point is, is that look at evolution. So other countries, there's always a bit of denialism in developed countries. Um, they're kind of but, settled. Don't you think? Because I mean, from, from gay marriage to evolution to all of these things are settled in Europe. There's no there's no presence of such figures in Europe, you know, in Australia a little but bit. There's, but there's plenty of COVID denial in Europe. Yeah, no, there is. I'm, I'm just saying I find I it. I mean, I would point out to some of the uh, demonstrations, such as the one, for instance, that Robert, you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. spoke at last summer in London. No, no, you know, no, the, no. I, I'm not saying. Protests, et cetera. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm not saying. OK, so uh, there, there's a lot of it to go around. But l l like take some issues of evolution, for instance, uh, a lot of the culture wars, you, you know, because the, the thing about the scientific method is that it's an, a truth assessment a tool. Right. And so if a religious person that's broken down because, you know, to quote Voltaire, those who can make you believe it, absurdities can make you commit atrocities. But I think the way I would modify that, I would say those that can make you believe absurdities in one realm can make you believe. So if you look at QAnon, again, the overlap of evangelical right-wingers, there's not a mistake, the Republican Party, which has become, there's no Republican Party anymore, it's the cult of Trump, that his base of support are evangelical Christians. The Republican Party has become so extreme because it's appealed and encouraged right-wing religious fanaticism, right? But, but, I would, but I would push back a little bit on that, and that QAnon is, at its heart, nothing more than a 21st century resurrection of the Jewish blood libel, which True. goes way back back hundreds of years in Europe and still exists in Europe. So the satanic panic, yeah, as well. From yeah, the and, and satanic panics were, were not unique to the U.S. I'm not saying that, hmm. you know, the heavy influence of evangelicals here in the U.S. doesn't matter and doesn't make us prone to a lot of conspiracy theories that have less, say, purchase or, or resonance in other parts of the world. But I would push back a bit that that's like that that we are uniquely prone to this sort of thing. I mean, no, I'm talking more about the role of religion as I mean, it can happen in many other places. I mean, the Middle East, you can't it's all but illegal to teach evolution. I was actually at a school in the UAE where my colleague was a biology teacher who literally couldn't mention evolution. And this was a private school. It's all but banned. And I'm saying the, the role of religion is baleful. It's just the US seems like
like an outlier in comparison to Europe, Australia. Not that there isn't a lot of the craziness all over the world. I, I, mean, the world. I mean, that, that, that's, you know, th- you know, that's, you know, mostly a fair point. I just think that occasionally <laughs> we go a little overboard in, 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 in making that point because humans are humans everywhere in the world. You, you know, if you start looking around elsewhere, you know, there's a lot of denial of science based on religion, ideology, whatever. So I think you're probably, you know, among developed countries, yes, it is, has always been frustrating to me how much conservative evangelical religion colors, you know, our politics and our science policy. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to deny that. But I, I don't know that elsewhere, you know, for instance, even in Europe, that it's so much better. Yeah, I mean, for instance, I could point to how much more pre-pandemic I could point to how much more prevalent anti-vaccine conspiracy theories were, say, in France, you know, the UK, et cetera, than they were here. I mean, yes, we, you know, I I mean, the percent of of children unvaccinated against MMR in, say, France and the UK was much higher than it was here. We'll have to take a bit of a deep dive into vaccines, because I think that although your general thesis remains robust, there's something kind of unique about vaccines. But let's not jump the gun there. On the point of your articles, which, again, I enjoy immensely because of how thorough you are, the rigor of your logic, the evidence you bring to bear on your subject. But I asked John Cook this, you know, from Skeptical Science. You probably know him, the uh, climate change Mm -hmm. communication specialist. And I asked him this question as well, which I'm keen to hear your opinion on, is that you take this incredible amount of effort to very diligently and scrupulously unpack denialist claims of all stripes, Mm -hmm. a lot of it around vaccines. And there's this frustrating to me asymmetry between people like you and indeed the skeptical immunity science-based medicine let's say and denialists because they call themselves skeptics i think they're just denialists who then can say something like evolution's not true vaccines cause autism all the crazy stuff and i can't just say well climate change is true or evolution is a fact let's say because it's just sort of a he said she said you know it's two people so what do you make of this informational asymmetry or this this is not this is nothing this is nothing new. We were talking you know, we've been talking about this for years and years before the pandemic. The pandemic yeah, yeah. just made it an order of magnitude worse, probably. Yeah. I, I mean, let's put it you know, not in the way that we were complaining about social that we complain about social media now, hmm. you know, we were complaining about anti vaccine blogs like ten or fifteen years ago. Uh, and and and, you know, I, in retrospect, you know, there's one article, I, there's one post I did like five or six. Are you familiar with the CDC whistleblower conspiracy theory? No. So it's the whole, ba- are you are you familiar oh. or have you seen the movie Vaxxed? No, I, I think I know. I, I haven't, but I know about it. The uh, idea that there was a scientist in the mm. CDC who was whistleblowing, telling the truth about <laughs> a study from like 2004, you know, uh, from Atlanta that supposedly, you know, that supposedly showed that, you know, Africa, the vaccines were associated with like about a fourfold increase in autism in African-Americans. Now, I, of course, when when I wrote about it the first time, it was like 2014, 2015, Mm -hmm. I forget exactly. My, My point was, you know, this study actually, you know, even if you accept everything anti-vaxxers are saying about this study, it de- it, sh- it definitely shows that vaccines don't cause autism in any other race but African-Americans. Mm. And, and, and even then African-Americans, like the numbers are so small, et cetera, et cetera, that, it, you know, it could easily be an outlier. But, but my, I guess 
basically the idea is, again, we're getting back to the conspiracy theory. It's something mm-hmm. they don't want you to know. And as far as, you know, Vaxxed goes, you know, it was the basis of conspiracy. Th- you know, it was an interesting thing for me to watch a new conspiracy theory develop like in real time you know like i watched this conspiracy theory which is still going on today develop in real time i've seen the permutations and the you know the various parts of it metastasize and you know and i think a lot of it started to you know actually help form the basis of the distrust of the cdc that hmm. ended up leading to the covid conspiracy theories that we've seen over the last year you know almost year and a half now yeah so as you said this is something i guess will be a perennial problem now before again moving into vaccines i was interested to to before before, before you do that can i I, what i was leading to is something that came up on social media the other day brandolini's law have you heard of brandolini's law it's also known as the bullshit asymmetry principle (laughs) (laughs) i like that basically the idea is it takes an order of magnitude more effort to refute bullshit than it does to create bullshit. <laughs> Personally, I think the law vastly underestimates the asymmetry. <laughs> I think it's more like two or three orders of magnitude yes. more effort to refute the bullshit you know, than it does to create it. But I, I mean, that's sort of what I was getting to. It's asymmetrical warfare. We are, you know, skeptics and you know, those supporting science-based medicine are at a huge disadvantage. You know, we, most of us have demanding full-time jobs. Most of us don't have a lot of time. Most of us don't make money on this. I mean, there are a few exceptions of people who have like blogs or blogs or um, Instagram, YouTube accounts who make some money off of, you know, you know, things like Patreon and that sort of thing. But for the most part, you know, we do this in our spare time. We might be able to cover expenses with, you know, Patreon and that's that's GoFundMe and stuff like that. Whereas in the, you know, in the science denial, as I like to call it, the science denial industry, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of grift there. I mean, look at someone like Joe Mercola. Yeah. Are you familiar with him? Yes, unfortunately. I like to call him a, a tycoon because the guy is worth over $100 million, you know, really? network. From from his his you know his website and all the stuff that he sells, he is, he has a net worth over a hundred million dollars. It's shocking, all from from lies. And- he's developed in about the last twenty. Eh, he got his start in the late nineteen nineties. He was like one of the first into the monetizing websites. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> got in there early as a, as a charlatan now yeah i was actually wanted to speak about some of these figures but before getting there uh, i was interested to hear in the podcast i mentioned that you did earlier this year and also some of your writing that you cut your skeptical teeth as it were on usenet and other sites trying to combat holocaust denial yes now, yes now, this is going back to the late 1990s yeah and i was actually the, the funny thing is i was actually this is a sort of thing i got into I guess you would say relatively late in life, you know, you know, I am currently in my late fifties and, you know, so in the late nineties, I was in my late thirties, you know, I hadn't really thought much about this stuff until my mid to late (laughs) thirties. 
But as with all, although, again, I think your general point about conspiracy thinking lurking in all science denial, Holocaust denial to me is a separate category in a way that they're all separate categories. They all have different motivating aspects. But, 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 but Holocaust denial is a conspiracy theory. No, 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 no. no, no. But as a, if you just let me elaborate here, what, okay, what I mean okay. to say, that they, again, your general thesis is correct, but there's always different motivating underlying. So evolution, it's religion, often climate change, it's the free market, sometimes religion as well. So with Holocaust denial, why I find that difficult to engage in anyone is that there are clearly, you know, if you think about our culture, Western culture in particular, you grow, everyone grows up watching World War II film. You can't go through a year without watching some film, let's say, that right, right. You, know, we used to, you know what we used to call the History Channel? What? The Hitler Channel. Because <laughs> that's kind of, but that, but that, 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 because I mean, it used to, well, I mean, it isn't so much anymore, but like 10 or 15 years ago, it was like nothing but World War II yeah. documentaries. But, but you see, but that's precisely my point. Whereas you can go through weeks and weeks and weeks, and climate change is barely mentioned, evolution is, and a lot of other aspects of vaccination, the science behind it. So, not that I'm excusing those positions anymore because I, I'm increasingly impatient, but the point is, if you meet someone who's a Holocaust denier, you mm -hmm. can conclude immediately they are going to be a vile, disgusting anti-Semite. And I'm quite frankly, I and, I and, and, and more than that, they're they're probably they're probably a fascist or at least yes. fascist a fascist sympathizer. Yes. So, David, what I'm what I'm trying to get at here is I can sometimes people just have a good faith misunderstanding or ignorance. OK, sometimes mm -hmm. that happens with a lot of other topics. With that topic, it's impossible. And just a quick little personal anecdote here. An American friend of mine who studied with me, she sent me this text one night saying, I'm at this party. This guy's, you know, he's denying the Holocaust. Can you give some references? I thought she was joking. I just laughed it off. Then she said, no, no, seriously, try and give me some books. And I kind of try to play the game and send her like Roel uh, Wallenberg book but it just i thought to myself if i encounter someone like that in a party let alone online i'm gone i don't i don't talk to that person i turn my back so why would you spend all this time with people who are totally immoral and deluded in the most vile way <laughs> yeah I, I mean yeah but i guess when you get right down to it though conspiracy theories are not um most, I, I mean, it's hard to find a science denial that's not driven by some ideology, some hmm. worse than others. Yeah, exactly. Some uh, worse than others. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, Holocaust denial is basically a way. I, 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 I'm blanking on. There was a famous. There was a famous saying by a Holocaust a Holocaust denier who was actually, you know, a fascist neo-Nazi back from the '90s or the '80s, even and. Basically, he admitted that, and, and I really, I, I wish I could remember exactly the quote, but he basically admitted that Holocaust denial is a way to make fascism not, you know, anathema again. Like, it's a way to whitewash fascism. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, basically, you know, you think about it, what is the single worst thing about fascism, you know, it, it, besides all the other things, but like, what is the single thing about fascism that gets, that keeps people from finding it a bit more attractive? And it's the Holocaust, you know, like, hmm. Nazism, fascism produced the Holocaust. Hmm. You know, um, absent the Holocaust, fascist ideas become a little, at least a little less offensive or, you know, anathema or, or vile. So how do you deal uh, with these? That's the, that's the idea, you know. That that's the you know, one thing that keeps people from finding fascist ideas as you know as attractive is that 
the association with mass murder. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's of a systematic government instigated program of the mass murder of a single, you know, religion, race, however you want to characterize the Jews. So, of course, they, they want to, they don't want, you know, it, Let's say you find the ideas of fascism attractive, but those ideas are associated with mass murder. Hmm. So you, you're going to want to find a way to minimize or deny the mass murder associated with those fascist ideas. And, it, you know, it, it's, a, it's definitely an issue. But I, I would say that, you know, whatever the ideology that most, that it's hard not to separate science denial or history denial in this case, although there's an element of science denial in, in Holocaust denial, for instance, you know, they deny the, the scientific and historical evidence of the mass murder, you know, in particular the gas chambers. You know, there's there's whole swaths of Holocaust denial that try to disprove that Holocaust yes. that gas chambers either one existed or that they were used for mass murder. Did you ever even come close to converting or deconverting anyone or challenging their beliefs in a meaningful way? No, but you know, here's the, here's the thing about science denial, and this, you know. <laughs> It's and the same is true of a, a lot. It's not just Holocaust deniers, or you know, and it's most denial. You know, it, it's based in ideology, and you're never going to convert the hardcore. Mm -hmm. That's not the point. Okay, it, it, you just can't. And at the risk, of, no, anti-vaxxers are not fascists, although some of them are. But <laughs> you know, it's but you're never going to convert a hardcore anti-vaxxer. You're just not. I mean, the amount of effort it takes, even if even in the rare cases when it's successful, is just so much that that it's not worth it. The idea is to target those who might be susceptible to the message or who are on the fence, who are potentially convertible. You know, not the hardcore anti-vaxxers. And, you know, you are not going to change the mind of the people who run, for instance, the Age of Autism website. Or you are not going to change, say, Del Bigtree's mind or Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s mind or, you know, those, you know, the leaders or the, the thought leaders or, the, or, the, or even the foot soldiers in the anti-vaccine movement because they are true believers. Hmm. It's like trying to deconvert a cultist. You know, it, 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 there, there is an element of cult, cultishness there, but you're not going to convert, you're not going to change their minds, except rarely and with a ton of effort. Uh, but you can, what, if you'll excuse the term, inoculate others against their, their misinformation, pseudoscience, disinformation, etc. Mm -hmm. That is possible. And so, you know, I, I like the idea of, pre-bunking. Dr. Lewandowski, I think, came up with the idea, which is basically debunking, you know, pre-bunking anti-vaccine ideas and having it out there for the people who might come in contact with anti-vaccine ideas or, you know, any science denial. But, you know, since I'm most associated with refuting anti-vaccine mm -hmm. pseudoscience, I'll, I'll stick with that. But pre-bunking it with, you know, deconstructions of the conspiracy theories, science-based discussion, refutations of the various tropes. And it's a never ending task, of course, because even though as I, you know, as, as I've been saying for many months, as far as the anti vaccine movement goes, everything, everything old is new again, you know, like 
every old anti-vaccine propaganda trope bit of disinformation has been has reappeared and has has been re, reappeared has reappeared and been repurposed for you know COVID nineteen vaccines mm-hmm. and COVID nineteen. I mean, they've all made a comeback. You know, the idea that the disease is not deadly. You know that those the, the you know Andrew Wakefield acolytes who would say the same thing about measles, for instance. You know that, it, that they even would like you know in the years before the pandemic they would point to an episode of the Brady Bunch where yes. the measles was played for laughs. You know, like all the kids got the measles and it wasn't so bad. You know, they they all got time off from school. You know, et cetera, et cetera. As it, it, the idea being that oh. Back in the late 1960s, nobody thought the measles was a big deal. It was just a routine childhood disease that, you know, everybody got, mm. <laughs> you know, except that, you know, about one in a thousand could die of it. And which when, you know, when you have a half a million or when you have like 400,000 cases a year, yes, that yeah. adds up to big numbers. I mean, it's the same thing with COVID, which is deadlier. Let's say that you accept the figure that only, only 0.2% die of COVID. Okay. I mean, it's all, you know, the, 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 um, the, the case fatality rate is certainly higher than that. And the infection fatality rate is probably higher than that. But let's just use that because it's the one that anti-vaxxers like to quote. Mm. You know, they say, oh, 99.8% pe- of people survive. Yes. Well, you know, that's two out of a thousand or one in 500 who don't. When you have millions of cases, <laughs> mm. right? When you have millions of cases, it start, suddenly starts adding up to... Mm many thousands or hundreds of thousands of deaths and you know we're, we're almost at 600,000 deaths in just the u.s alone and i forget what it is worldwide it's something what like what three or four million now i i, I haven't checked recently uh you know how many people have died and that doesn't even count the number of people who've suffered serious illness or long-term you know long-term disability that we don't even know how long it's going to last because it's only you know the pandemic's all you know the disease has only been around a year and a half a little more than a year and a half yeah and it, only, and it only just hit the u.s you know less than a year and a half ago yeah exactly so yeah it's just been kind of frightening all the misinformation disinformation propaganda and just shows you being anti-science does kill but Vaccines are an area I've written about extensively, so I'd like to drill into this issue, but again, starting sort of a bit of a wider angle lens, which is that, and I recently read to pull off its excellent book, Deadly Choices, uh-huh. about, about a decade ago, and yeah, I mentioned the Brady Bunch there. And of course, although vaccinations have been one of the singular public health successes in the last few centuries and have eliminated sure. whole diseases, as he points out in this book, of course, he looks at the modern history in America, let's say the anti-vaccine scare, which kind of goes back to this NB, uh, NBC special of 19 Right, and then 19, like 1980 or so, yes, something and, like that. And uh, with Barbara Fish, and then of course, Wakefield has been sort of reinstigated that for, for a modern audience. But as he also points out, he goes into the history of when the first vaccine emerged in 1796, devised by Edward Jenner, that there was immediately pushback and uh, some fear oh. around this issue. And as you pointed out with the figures in the UK and France, whereas I think many other conspiracy theories in the US, I would argue, are definitely tell anti or science rejection, definitely tied to religiosity, particularly evolution. There's even now a um, sure. But uh, the point is that, and Rob Brotherton in his book, Suspicious Minds, looks at the anti-vaccine issue and he points out that people have a kind of an instinctive fear, particularly with their children having a toxin in their body that oh, no, can be I, dangerous. 
But I, I, I've written about this. You know, it, but it's it's scary for a parent. You know, especially even more recently when you know it's not just one vaccine. You know, sometimes they'll get multiple yeah. injections on the same visit. So yeah, I, I, you know, and and anyone who writes about this has to understand that psychological aspect of it. You know, nobody wants to you know see their baby or child. Hmm. suffer because of the needles you know the needle sticks and you know you know in routine in pediatrics offices you know screaming children when they find out they're getting a shot you know <laughs> so but doesn't this point to yeah so that's one aspect for one's children yes and as you said there's a fear aspect but also even for oneself having a foreign body so i see vaccines as kind of unique in that one could imagine although it's difficult to under present circumstances a lot of the other denial of science kind of disappearing or, or not having the same prominence, whereas vaccinations seem a sticky one because the evidence is overwhelming, but yet it's still this idea of something being stuck in my arm. I mean, you have people who have feared. I, I'm a blood donor, but many people don't like doing that. Just the idea of needles in them. Well, them sure. Isn't and this a, a really a knotty problem? Well, well, as I've written about, you know, I like to... <laughs> I like to point out, you know, the the idea, you know, that it comes back to a, basically a kind of a religious idea, you know, the idea of purity. You know, I, I like to joke about, you know, Dr. Strangelove. Have you seen that movie? Yes, fantastic. Yeah, brilliant. You know, the whole purity of essence mm. <laughs> part of the, you know, like the vaccines, you know, like he taught, you know, he goes into the anti-Florida, you know. Jack D. Ripper, right? General, General Jack, Jack, Jack D. Ripper. <laughs> Sterling Hayden, you know, the, the the guy who launches mm -hmm. you know the nuclear attack against the Soviet yeah. Union in the movie goes on and on about how Russians don't drink water they drink vodka because they don't you know and how fluoridation is a, is an assault on your purity of essence. Well, I mean that's a that's a really you know I've written about this and I've forgotten how many times, but that's essentially a religious idea. Uh, you know that you're protecting the purity of your essence and that mm. vaccines are somehow a contamination of that purity of essence, you know, or that purity. And that's where, for instance, the whole, you know, one, one trope that is free, you know, one, there, there's a, there's an anti-vaccine narrative that I like to call the toxins gambit. <laughs> and it's the idea that, you know, vaccines are loaded with these horrible toxins, mm. formaldehyde, Oh, that's it. you're injecting yourself with formaldehyde, you know, except that if you look at it, it's such a tiny amount that even in an infant, you know, an infant makes several times the amount of formaldehyde from just normal metabolism, <laughs> you know, compared to, you know, what's in any vaccine. Hmm. Um, you know, the mercury and thimerosal was a little bit dicier because, you know, mercury is a toxin. And it was, you know, it wasn't entirely unreasonable to wonder if there was a, an effect, you know, from too much thimerosal over the childhood vaccination schedule. There's, there, you know, studies have shown that there was not. And it's kind of interesting that, the, you know, the, the, there was a big, you know, we talk about messaging of COVID vaccines now, but let's go back 20 years when the question of thimerosal and childhood vaccines was an issue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can, again, everything old is new again. So, you know, the CDC and, and FDA, et cetera, you know, the, the commission, you know, the committee that looks at vaccine safety decided to remove or to recommend removing thimerosal from vaccines. This was roughly 20 years ago, you know, out of an abundance of caution, 
And what was the actual effect? You know, it backfired. You know, it actually, ran, you know, people were saying, they were saying to make safe vaccines even safer, we'll recommend removing thimerosal. What do you think the reaction to that was? <laughs> <laughs> Why are they doing this? What the thimerosal, there must have been something bad about the thimerosal, right? About the mercury in the thimerosal. So it, now it's interesting that thimerosal is still demonized because, you know, it's been, 20 years roughly since it was removed from childhood vaccines. And what would you expect if it really was a major cause of autism? You would expect that, you know, children born after that yes. would have a much lower prevalence of autism. Do they? No. <laughs> no, it's gone up. It's continued spoiler to alert. go up. Spoiler, spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> so, David, let's kind of move now to more COVID-relevant issues surrounding vaccines. So one of the customary talking points, and this is one of the ones where I think one could treat the person as if they're acting in good faith, but obviously it will be misused by bad faith actors. You you well know that right. gambit. And the argument goes something like this, which is that vaccines usually take years to develop, and yet yeah. under current conditions, vaccines have come on the market in some cases within, within a year. And so to me, that's not an obviously easy one to counter because it is actually true historically based on vaccine development. So if someone had this concern about these vaccines that have become available so soon, how would you address that as an issue, well, a potential issue of concern? Well, first, there, there's, there's kind of two parts to that. You know, mm -hmm. First, the issue of the development. Vaccines against coronaviruses have actually you know, been in development since the original SARS, which are 20 years ago. And I think part of what happened back then is, you know, after they encounter some difficulties, get it, you know, the fact that SARS fortunately didn't turn out to be as huge a deal, you know, as COVID has, you know, basically the impetus to develop them kind of, you know, waned. But the point is, for instance, the technologies that they like to demonize, you know, the uh, messenger RNA technology has been, you know, has actually been in development for close to two decades. You know, it's been in development a long time. And I, I've seen it written that had COVID hit us like five years ago, it would not have been ready. You know, it, it would not have been ready. They would not have been able to de develop it, you know, develop these vaccines vaccines as quickly. But we were fortunate in that basically the virus arrived at a time when, the, you know, the technology was ready. Same, I guess, with, with the adenovirus technology and, for instance, you know, the AstraZeneca and J&J &J vaccines. So there's at least a couple of decades of development behind the types of vaccines that we have. As for the testing, I mean, these vaccines actually didn't go through any you know, they, they went through the same sort of testing that any vaccine would go through, you know. Um, for instance, between the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, you know, the phase three clinical trials that were done had about well over 70,000 patients between the two of them. Or 70, I should say 70,000 subjects uh, between the two of them. So, and it, and it was a standard phase three trial. And the results were so impressive that granting an emergency, you know, that granting an emergency use authorization, which the FDA did, was entirely reasonable. Now, I can't really speak to other countries. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of this anti-vaccine rhetoric that's very America-centric. Mm. You know, I'll give you a for instance. A common anti-vaccine anti -vaccine talking point about COVID vaccines is that they are experimental. 
And it is true that in the U.S., until you have FDA approval for a product, you have to label it as investigational. Like that's a legal requirement. You know, it's a legal definition. I'm not, and I can't comment on the, you know, like in the rest of the world, you know, in other regulatory environments. But, you know, anti-vaxxers take advantage of that. They're saying these are experimental, you know, and in the U.S. legally, yes, they're still investigational because they were issued under an emergency use authorization and don't have full FDA approval yet. But I would argue they've gone through the same process that any other vaccine would go through. There were actually quite a few years of development of coronavirus vaccines leading up to them. Mm. And that if that hadn't been true, there's no way in hell there would have been these vaccines developed in the record time that they were developed in. Um, And yes, it's a new technology, but it's been in development for a very long time. You know, it's like the the, the RNA, you know, the RNA vaccines. That that was a question I I wanted to ask you. Yeah, that one of the other talking points is this idea of the novel mRNA or messenger RNA vaccines that are quite new. So you say that it's kind of a bit misleading because technically they're new, but they've been in development for a long time. They're new for coronavirus. And, And yes, the Pfizer and the um, Moderna vaccines are the first ones that were ever granted any sort of approval for a wide distribution in humans. To me, that's, you know, that's great. That's like, yay, science. Uh, but um, that can be spun. But, but it can also be, but I understand, you know, it's, a, it's new. And because it's new in terms of, you know, actual products, it's easy to demonize or fearmonger about. And it's not unreasonable to wonder, you know, if they are true, if they are truly safe. However, I would argue that between the phase three trials of those vaccines, plus now close to 300 million doses given in the U.S. alone and well over a billion doses worldwide uh, with so far very good safety records, I would say that, okay, legally in the United States, they're still investigational because because of that's the way the law in the U.S. is written. However, from any reasonable scientific viewpoint, I would say they are not investigational anymore. Hmm. And that, you know, they're, they've actually proven themselves to be surprisingly, or, or they've, to be very safe and to, to me, surprisingly effective. I did not expect vaccines with over 90% efficacy to be developed so fast, as, you know, given the history of vaccine development for, you know, for instance, SARS, and, you know, and then, you know, 10 years later, MERS, you know, which is another, the other coronavirus, which is even more deadly. So I guess, I guess what I would say is, yes, these particular vaccines are new. The technology behind them is not new. Um, it's been under development for quite some time. And um, I would say we are fortunate that it was actually mature enough that it could be repurposed so quickly when the pandemic hit. And I would also say that it's very likely that within a few months, both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, at least, will attain full FDA approval. Again, I can't comment in the rest of the world. For instance, yes. the, you know, the EU is like the other big, you know, regulatory block. And then, you know, there's every other country, too. But, you know, the, so- the EU is like, EU is like the, the other big one besides yes. the U.S., 
So the other concern, but this is something that only becomes clear in the fullness of time, would be the side effects because the H1N1 now, Stephen Novella wrote a post at Science-Based Medicine earlier this year analyzing, you know, the claim about narcolepsy. But as he pointed out, let's say in some countries like in Iceland and Finland, there was a difference there among teenagers. So it's not even right. clear. So what about those? But, but those were actually not long-term effects though they showed up fairly quickly yes okay um, so there's one thing about yeah. you know one one of a favorite anti-vaccine talking point is we don't know the long-term effects of these vaccines now it's an old talking point mm -hmm. it is not unique in any way to the covid vaccines mm -hmm. It is a talking point they have been using ever since I first started paying attention to this issue you know 20 year 20 plus years ago it, you know and, and their idea is that autism is a long-term complication, for instance, of vaccines, or that autoimmune diseases are a long-term complication of vaccines, or even cancer, mm. cancers of various types are long-term complications of vaccines, none of which, for none of these is there good evidence, <laughs> you know, yes. and there are really very few examples of vaccine adverse events that happen more than a few weeks to on a time frame of more than a few weeks to months after administration. It's just vanishingly rare. The vast majority, if there are adverse events due to vaccines, the vast majority of them happen soon, like soon after. Yeah, that's a really important point to note. Hopefully we'll allay some fears. And then on to specific vaccines based on the data you have sure. seen, which ones do you think are the best, the most effective that are currently on the market or available? <sighs> you know, I mean, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are surprisingly, you know, I, you know, I, I got the Pfizer, but that the only reason I got Pfizer was it was what was available when I got vaccinated, you know, basically people people were like, oh, you need to put your money where your mouth is. Well, I did, you know, as soon as the as soon as our hospital chain sent out the emails saying the, we have the vaccine, I was like, yes, sign me up, you know, and they happened to have Pfizer. So, you know, I got Pfizer, but I would have taken Moderna, uh, which were the, you know, Moderna was available like a couple weeks later, you know, after that, but in any event, those are probably the two most effective, but their downside, of course, is that they require two doses. Yes, I was going to point to the and, Johnson, you know, Johnson, which is a single mechanistic, you know, and, and logistically, it's very hard to make sure that people get their second doses mm. when they're supposed to. You know, it's it's like really that's a really difficult challenge when you're trying to vaccinate millions and millions of people. Mm. So, you know, the J&J &J vaccine is somewhat less effective, but still pretty darn effective. And it's a single dose, which is a huge advantage, especially for people who might have trouble, you know, might have trouble getting them back for their second dose. I'm not as familiar with the AstraZeneca. And yes, you know, there has been the issue of, you know, the, the blood clots associated yeah. with the AstraZeneca and the J&J &J vaccine. But I would still, you know, those are still pretty darn rare. And I, I, I like to argue, for instance, for the J&J &J vaccine, at least in the US, and the AstraZeneca vaccine too in Europe, that, you know, th this is a pushback to the the anti-vaccine claim that, you know, that we're, the safety monitoring system is inadequate. Well, at the time, the FDA issued a pause on the use of the J&J &J vaccine, for instance, the rate of the that, that, that cerebral blood clot that was of concern 
was literally one in a million, and it had been detected within about a month and a half of the vaccine being deployed. I mean, that's pretty darn good, mm. you know, for, for detecting a rare potential, you know, rare adverse events that could potentially be related to the vaccine. In reality, the vaccine safety surveillance that we've had with the deployment of the COVID vaccines has been unprecedented in, you know, in its intensity and scope. If there are safety problems with any of the vaccines, they will be picked up relatively quickly. And and you could argue have been picked up relatively quickly, at least in the case of the J&J vaccine. And then there, there, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not as familiar with this one, but you know, the recent one that's come up is the question of heart inflammation in children after vaccination. Again, rare, but picked up not long after an emergency use authorization for the Pfizer vaccine was issued for children, you know, 12 to 16. So, and what about the Sinovac and Sputnik V, the the Chinese one and the Russian? I'll be honest, I'm nowhere near as familiar with those. I I don't know that I can comment intelligently on those. Maybe it's something I should look into because I, I get I you know I guilty. I'm I tend to be U.S. centric in my in my in what I know about. Um, and no, here's, uh, no, that's that's perfectly uh, legitimate. And also you're being honest. So I think that shows tremendous intellectual honesty. Now, this question is a little bit tricky and difficult to pose because I, I seem to be kind of batting for the other side, as it were, which I'm not. Oh, being, you know, a lot of people. It's OK. You're being devil's advocate here. Uh, Go ahead. I'm being a devil's advocate a little bit. But what I'm trying to formulate is that individuals such as yourself uh, who promote the skeptical position, the science based position often seem to. And this is same of some other people kind of neglect or maybe downplay is a better word the role of pharmaceutical industry in having a very machiavellian lack of transparency profit driven approach under covid but but, but do we do we really let me just lay this out without maybe ascribing blame the point i'm trying to get at is that you look at the behavior and it's recently come to light that there have been nine new billionaires generated in the pharmaceutical industry Uh i think it was pfizer posted like billions of dollars in profit and they'll have tens of billions by the end of the year and the big thing is the intellectual property right so there are poorer countries where i happen to be based that could manufacture if it wasn't for the patent intellectual property right uh, which is now luckily the biden administration has agreed with the wto and to waive it, the EU is still actually not doing this. So you see this kind of heavy lobbying of industry and and, and they're saying, and I know that the pharmaceutical industry is embedded in a larger socioeconomic system that puts profit before people. It's called capitalism. And so, and it's even worse if you consider they received billions of dollars or billions Uh of euros in public funding. And so they socialize the risk, but they privatize the profit. So what I'm really getting at is that this doesn't justify any of the disinformation, the anti-vaccine stance. But it does point to the fact that we need to have a different model of public health globally, because I'm quite sure there wouldn't be as much vaccine hesitancy and a lot of other issues if these pharmaceutical industries weren't seen as so ruthless and inhumane, actually. So what do you make of this point? Well, that, I mean, I'll, I'll get to the pharmaceutical com- companies in a second. But your last point that there wouldn't be so much hesitancy if it weren't for the pharmaceutical companies and that angle, I would push back against. If it's not the pharmaceutical companies, it would be something else. Mm. I guarantee it. (laughs) So, uh, but let's get back to the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, 
Yeah, so, you know, I, I understand, uh, I'm, you know, pharmaceutical companies have done bad things in the past, and they are profit-driven. That being said, you know, I, I don't know how otherwise you develop and market the um, something like a vac, you know, something like a vaccine. Uh, you I, mean, I, I, I mean, I guess the question is how how do you how do you alter how do, I guess the way I look at it is how do you alter the incentives? You know, for, this is you know this is all more philosophy than anything, and and. I under, you know, one thing I'll mention is that waiving, you know, the intellectual property rights, for instance, for these vaccines is not a panacea, because it's not trivial to replicate these vaccines. Can it be done? Of course, it can be done. And, you know, for instance, you know, obviously, if it couldn't be done, there wouldn't be a big generic drug industry, you know, going on. But it's not trivial. You know, it's not the sort of thing where you, if you wave the magic wand and and, and waive the intellectual property rights of all the existing COVID vaccines for however long you think it needs to be waived for, or they need to be waived for, that tomorrow you'll have all these, you know, all the vaccines that you need. But you agree you it's know? better to do that than not because we're in a global pandemic. Oh, I don't, yeah, I, I, it, yeah, in the middle of a global pandemic, I think it's something that should certainly be strongly considered, if not definitely done. I'm just saying it's not a panacea and it won't, like, solve the vaccine shortages, for instance, in the developing world overnight. And obviously, yes, there is the issue of equity. I mean, the U.S. bought up so many doses of vaccines and wealthier countries have bought up so many doses of vaccines that it may well be 2022 before the poorer countries even see a single, you know, see a single dose of these vaccines, right? You know, so I think that in terms of equity, waiving intellectual property rights would be a good thing to do. I'm just pushing back against the idea that it would have an yeah, effect very sure. quickly. Sure. <laughs> so do you believe that the only way we're really going to turn the corner on COVID is through mass vaccination? That's that, that's a more complicated question than you may than you may realize. However, I guess to put it briefly or bluntly or shortly, the, the answer is probably yes, just because clearly behavioral interventions are not sustainable. You know, regular, you know, you, you can't force people to, you know, just the resistance to just something as easy as masks, you know, <laughs> it's just, it, it just shows, you know, it just shows that public health interventions other than vaccines from a practical standpoint, even though they can work, are just in general not sustainable. I mean, if sure, if you're New Zealand, for instance, and you're an island and you can shut things down and keep people out for a year, you can shut you can shut COVID down. <laughs> but everywhere else, you know, I, I it's probably not practical. So, unfortunately, yes, probably we have to vaccinate ourselves our way out of this. I don't at this point see any other way. I'm not a public health expert, though. I always say, look, I'm not a public health doctor. I've learned about as much as you can learn without taking like formal training in public health. <laughs> uh, but listen to what your public health experts say.
Okay, well, thank you for the sage advice. Yes, on your point, I must definitely walk back the intimation that some of pharmaceutical industries would drive vaccine hesitancy, because of course, as I also cited earlier, this issue goes back to the first vaccine in 1796. When well, well, and I would also say, <laughs> so, you know, if governments, if governments are pushing the vaccine, which they understandably want to, because they want to be able to shut down the pandemic and get economic and social life back to normal as quickly as possible, well, then any sort of anti-government sentiments or anti-regulation yes. sentiments. Yes. I, I mean, one of the worst things that happened with respect to the anti-vaccine movement is not something that happened. Well, it's something that got turbocharged during the pandemic, but it predates the pandemic. And that is the alliance between right wing, you know, small government, anti-regulatory state conservatives and the anti-vaccine movement. This sort of alliance dates back at least a decade, but it really took off in 2015, which was when California was pushing SB 277, which is the law that was ultimately passed that eliminated non-medical philosophic you know, personal belief exemptions to school vaccine mandates. If you really want to date when the alliance between, you know, the far right and anti-vaxxers started, that was 2015 would be the year, at least in the U.S. And COVID just turbocharged it. I used to I used to routinely point out that if you look at surveys and studies, the prevalence of anti-vaccine beliefs doesn't really differ that much across the political spectrum. You know, there's there's anti-vaccine beliefs on the far left. You know, the the, the stereotype used to be that mm. anti-vaccine beliefs were you know mainly the province of you know the crunchy hippy dippy lefty you know natural type people you know in the, um, the left wingers. That was always a stereotype that was that was never really true, but it was a very common stereotype and you can you know you can see it in a lot of media you know like for instance the daily show once did one where you know the anti the anti-vaccine mother was shown as being you know this total crunchy hippy dippy type woman you know hmm. a few years ago it was never really true there's always been a hard right wing element to the anti-vaccine movement it just wasn't as prominent until the last six or seven years, and especially the last year and a half of the pandemic, when I can confidently say and have been saying for like the last two or three years that right here, right now, even though anti-vaccine sentiments are pretty common and fairly equal in prevalence across the political spectrum, right here, right now, the most dangerous, loudest, prominent, powerful anti-vaxxers tend to be right-wing. You know th th those movements. There are exceptions. There's always exceptions. I mean, for instance, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is not right wing, hmm. although he did play footsie with the right wing. You know, last year when he went and spoke at that rally in Berlin. Yes, you may. Um, let's see. Um, people like Rob Schneider, if you know who he is, are not the actor. Right -wing. The actor, uh, comedian, actor. Yes, comedian. he he he's become a you know fairly prominent voice in the anti-vaccine movement, and he's definitely progressive, you know. Well, J Jenny McCarthy and, and Jim Carrey, those are other examples. But but, uh, but I mean, here, right here, right now, if you look at the anti-vaccine groups, for instance, like Texans for Vaccine Choice and a lot of the anti-vaccine groups, they tend to be very libertarian, right-wing, anti-regulatory state. And they couch their 
rhetoric in that sort of those sorts of ideas. You know, they say they'll go, I'm not anti-vaccine, I'm pro-freedom, you know, <laughs> or I'm not anti-vaccine, I'm for parental rights. Yes. No, or I'm not anti-vaccine. I just don't think the government should be able to mandate vaccines. Yes. And that alliance really took off beginning in 2015 and has become really tight, you know, over the last year. You actually wrote a really good post from 2018 in which you made the point the Republican Party has now become the party of anti-vaxxers. And it has. I mean, it goes. the first time I really noticed it was in late 2015 at one of the Republican debates, you know. Um, and, you know, and I, I, I've documented, for instance, Donald Trump, you know, Donald, I, I documented Donald Trump's anti-vaccine statements dating back to like 2009 or 2008 or something like that, where he apparently came to believe that vaccines could cause autism. I don't know how, but he said, you know, he, he called it the monster shot, you know, if you might remember that quote. But um, in 20, late 2015, one of the earliest Republican primary debates, you know, you had Rand Paul yeah. saying things. Uh, before that, you had um, Governor, you know, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie was playing, you know, was making these sorts of statements that seemed to echo anti-vaccine statements, but with plausible deniability, you know, like I'm for freedom and parental rights. You know, I don't think you should be able to mandate the vaccines. Rand Paul himself is, is anti-vaccine. I'll, yes. I'll just say it right there. He and he's a very powerful senator, and he be, he clearly believes vaccines cause autism. He said a lot of anti-vaccine things over the years. But here's the way I look at it: Are there anti-vaxxers in the Democratic Party? Of course there are. You know, <laughs> but the difference between Republicans and the Democrats is that anti-vaxxers in in the Democratic Party or who are marginalized. They are not powerful. They are not influential. Whereas in the Republican Party, they're a big part of the base now. Hmm. So Republicans, even those who are not anti-vaccine, feel like they have to pander to the anti-vaccine fringe. And you see this in campaigns. So the, the political power of the anti-vaccine movement, even before the pandemic, was growing frightening and also just again demonstrates the Republican Party is both a cult of Trump and an anti-science uh, movement. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I used to try to push back against that because, you know, like, well, no, I mean, 10 years ago, for instance, you know, I, I mean, I used to, okay, you know who Bill Maher is? Yes, of course. Well, yes. So, you know, I, I would point to, for instance, when Bill Maher interviewed uh, Senator Frist, you know, who is was Republican, also a physician, but who also basically called him out for his anti-vaccine statements. And there used to be a lot of, you know, as bad as the Republican Party had gotten, there used to be a lot of pro-vaccine Republicans. You know, they, they it, as I like to put it, the question of vaccines and vaccine mandates used to have a pretty broad and deep level of bipartisan support. That's just, you know, that's been disappearing over the last several years. I, for instance, I once went to a, uh, in 2018, right before the Republican primary in my state, I went to a meeting or an event that was held at, our, at, our, at a local Republican office. And basically it was an anti-vaccine event. You know, I went there and I wrote about it. You know, <laughs> it's like I was, I was a mole. I didn't say anything. I kept my mouth shut. Nobody knew who I was. 
you know, because if because if they did, that might have been uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, but uh, just a tad. But in any event, you know, it was basically in the name of vaccine freedom. One of the candidates for U.S. representative from my district, a guy by the name of Kerry Bentavoglio, held this what he called a roundtable. And my state representative was there, Jeff Noble. And in fact, he was the moderator of the of the of the whole thing. You know, there was a there was a, a there was an anti-vaccine nurse. There was a parent activist, and, and, and there was Bentavolio. There was Jeff Noble. There was a candidate for governor there who was actually my state senator, Patrick Colbeck. Uh, who was term limited and his last term would end at the end of 2018. You know, they were all there. There were all these standard anti-vaccine tropes. But but this, the statement that I found most telling came from my state, my then state representative, Jeff Noble, who said, who was sitting on the house, you know, a, a house committee for health. And he said, whenever we talk about vaccine freedom or, you know, vaccine choice, it seems like only the Republicans are receptive and that the Democrats just want to put the shots in your arm, to paraphrase what he said. Mm. I, I think that was very telling, and it's hard to believe now that that was almost two years ago. You know, it was like August of 2018. Oh, God, almost three years ago. <laughs> like, yeah. So thinking it's 2020. Well, David, I want to be mindful of your time and you've already okay. been so generous. So if I can, maybe I'll ask you just about two more questions here. So beyond ideology, what do you think drives the likes of Mike Adams from Natural News and Joseph Merkler? And as you said, Robert Downey Jr. is a bit of an outlier because he's actually done good work as an environmental activist, but obviously... You mean, you mean Robert F. Kennedy? Oh, sorry, Robert. F. You said Robert Downey, and I was like, I, I think uh, uh, my mind suddenly went, what? Who? Sorry, he has yeah, some, yeah. You said stuff about vaccines? <laughs> Uh, thank you for correcting my Freudian slip. Yes, yes. So you wrote this piece about Mike Adams, the Operation Oblivion, which makes him sound mentally ill. I know he's attacked you a lot. And you think this guy should receive psychiatric help. But you noted in the end of this piece that it's all about the grift. I believe that's virtually an example. Well, there is. Well, is it I guess the question here. Here's the question. Do people like Mercola, Joe Mercola and Mike Adams incorporate anti-vaccine views and products into their message because of the grift? Hmm. Or did the grift come first? In other words, did the grift come first or did it come from their views and flow from their views that they saw that they could monetize their beliefs? And, and I honestly don't know the answer to that. I, I mean, if you look at Mercola's history, you know, he's been at this since the late 90s. And he started out promote, he started out, you know, he likes to brag how he started out this his natural health newsletter and website for free back in the 1990s. But that the reason that he started trying to make money off or, you know, started selling subscriptions or selling newsletters, selling products was because his web hosting was so expensive to maintain. And, and maybe that was true 20 some odd years ago kind of doubt it's true now i mean web hosting has gotten pretty cheap hmm. but the point is that you know it, it, which came first the belief or the grift i mean i think it can i think it can vary i think with mercola it probably was the belief that he discovered that he could monetize and does he truly believe his anti-vaccine views <sighs> 
probably. It's hard to say, you know. I, it's clear he believes his natural, you know, his natural health views. Um, and unfortunately, anti-vaccine views tend to be um, part and parcel of, you know, natural health. You know, the, the view that natural immunity is better, that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mike Adams has been a grifter, in my opinion, for a very long time. I, I, do you know what he did before he got into natural health? No, I don't believe I do. You remember the Y2K thing? Yes, yeah. He sold Y2K scams. Oh my goodness. He's been a <laughs> charlatan and a grifter for a long time. Wow. So, and then I, if you listen to his story, I mean, you know, the, the thing about him is you can't really believe anything he says, but let's say it's sort of true. Apparently, he developed some health problems, you know, like in the early 2000s and maybe type 2 diabetes. And he put on a bunch of weight and supposedly he cured himself of all of that with natural treatments, whatever the case, you know, he found that, you know, natural health grift was highly profitable, you know, um, and more recently, like in the last five to 10 years, he started latching on to the, you know, the more general conspiracy theorist. I mean, he, he was linked with Alex, he worked with Alex Jones for a while and, you know, when Trump came on the scene, he became pro-Trump. And, you know, more recently, he's latched on to QAnon mm. because, of course, he has. <laughs> you know, An equal uh, opportunity conspiracist, basically. So, I mean, do you ever see the movie Contagion? No. Oh, yeah. Yes, I have with... with you the, remember with the, the conspiracy theory movie. guy in that movie? Yes, yes. That he was, was, I, I've read that he was modeled on Mike Adams. Oh, the, the, Jude, the Jude Law character. <laughs> Jude, the Jude Law character. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if it's true, but I read that he, somewhere that he was modeled on Mike Adams. He does seem the, the type. All right. But he, but, and, and I mean, there's everything in between. I, I mean, I think that, you know, there's some true, there, there's obviously true believers and there are obviously opportunists, you know. It's quite sad that when you search your name, some of his critical articles come up first. or one. Or one Do they still? And I mean, here's the interesting thing. About five years ago, I used to joke that if I ever needed to find another job, I'm screwed. Because <laughs> if you Google my name, like if for some reason my current job wasn't working out or I became unhappy there or something or whatever, something that's fortunately not happened, but, you know, you always wonder if it could, I'd be screwed. First thing people would do is Google my name and there'd all be all this stuff and with Mike Adams stuff right at the top. That's not so much the case anymore since Google deprioritized a lot of those websites. So, I mean, some, some stuff still shows up, but for the most part, like my university and my cancer center pages show up, my the Wikipedia, I still find it hard to believe I have a Wikipedia page on me, but thank you, Susan, Gerb Susan Gerbic and the Gorilla Skeptics. <laughs> but, uh, in any event, it's not as true as it once was, you know, uh, but, you know, there was a time in 2016 when, for whatever reason, Adams decided he was going to try to shut me up or something. You know, he published something like 40 articles, some of them pretty libelous, and, you know, putting me in the situation of what do you do about it? Did you ever sue him or threaten legal action? At I thought about it, but I think it was what he wanted. And he is very wealthy. He's, his grift has been very profitable. He Oh, here's another thing you might not know about Mike Adams. You know, you want to know what his other business was? And I don't know if it still is. I dread to think. He sold software design for spammers. <laughs> It's true. This you guy. can look it up. I could, I could send you the links if you want. 
Oh my goodness! I but forget he's... the name of the I forget the name of the company, but yeah, it's like supremely awful human being. All right, now, David, my last question. I'm cheating a little bit. It's a bit of a double-barreled question. Uh, okay, go ahead. So those of us who consider themselves rational and believe in the scientific method and are scientifically skeptical seem to be overwhelmed by a ceaseless tidal wave of irrationality, idiocy, disinformation, propaganda, just outright lunacy on multiple fronts. So it seems like we're living in the great endarkment rather than enlightenment. So that's sort of question number one or sub-question number one. And then what can we do to stem this overwhelming tsunami of propaganda, lies, disinformation, and just, as I said, rank lunacy? Uh, I guess the question is, is it really that way or does it just seem that way because of the because of social media allowing rumors and disinformation and conspiracy theories and pseudoscience to spread so easily? Uh, and, and it's hard to say, you know. Um, 50 years ago, for instance, before everybody had the internet <laughs> with them all the time on their phone, hmm. cranks had a limited reach, you know, and some of them would publish newsletters, you know, some of them would just like harangue their social circle and rumors had much less ability to spread so rapidly. The downside of the democratization of information, you know, from the internet and social media is that cranks have just as much of a voice as you or I do. And unfortunately, they seem to have a lot more energy and time. <laughs> <laughs> which is, of course, another problem. And, and and it doesn't help that social media algorithms are designed around engagement because things that make people mad or things that are unusual or the tend to get more engagement, more clicks, more spreading, more sharing than patient, careful, debunking, science-based discussion, etc. It's a lot easier for misinformation to go viral, so to speak. So should social so I don't know the answer if it's more, I, I honestly, I, I don't mean to waffle, but I honestly don't know the answer if we truly are in an age of endarkenment compared to it just seeming that way because it's, because mm -hmm. the misinformation and pseudoscience are so much more in your face than they ever were before. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of historians on Twitter that I follow who like to post examples of newsletters from like 50, 60 years ago, and they're basically the same sorts of misinformation that we have now, but it's a newsletter limited by how many copies you could print and how many people would actually ever see it compared to something put on the World Wide Web or Facebook or Twitter that millions and millions of people around the world can see. So I, I guess, you know, it may seem like I'm kind of punting or maybe waffling, but I honestly don't know the answer. And, and it's the sort of question that we probably won't know the answer to until like after I'm dead, because <laughs> it's like when you can look back mm. and see as, you know, from a historical analysis, whether that's true or not. Living in it, it certainly seems that way or feels that way. And certainly, I feel that, you know, that again, coming back to Brandolini's law, that it's so much easier to spread nonsense than it is to combat it. And I, you know, I felt that even 20 years ago, when I was first sort of getting started at this. And it seems, you know, with the rise of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc, that it's just, you know, gotten 
more asymmetrical, like Brandolini's law, like I said, maybe it maybe it was maybe it was only an order of magnitude more difficult to refute misinformation like twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. Now it seems like it's two or three orders of magnitude more difficult. And should social media companies do more to root out and ban misinformation? Uh, they should, but how? I mean, the amount of information that flows through them is so huge that having human moderators deal with it might, you know, becomes expen- incredibly expensive and impractical. So, of course, they rely on algorithms and algorithms are not that great you know lots of it gets through um information that is science-based gets falsely fit you know incorrectly tagged as being misinformation i mean i've had facebook ban a couple of facebook bans because they thought something i posted was misinformation you know the algorithm was falsely tripped i've occasionally gotten dinged on twitter for the same thing and I honestly don't know the answer. Smarter people than I have failed to come up with good answers. Uh, and, and then there's the whole issue of philosophically, hmm. you want private, profit-driven companies responsible for rooting out misinformation. Do the incentives align? And often they don't. But that then brings up, well, whether a government should step in. <laughs> and you get into an even thornier set of questions. Yeah, it is quite difficult. But in any case, you are fighting the good fight with. Uh, we try. We try. I, you know, the one thing. I, I, one thing I'd like. I'll tell you one thing I would like to see, and uh, is young people who will replace me. You know, I'm in my late fifties now, so I'm starting to see there's a limit on how much longer I can keep doing this, you know, even if I keep doing it until the day I drop, you know, it's like, so we need young people to, to get involved and, you know, replace, you know, people like me, people, and, you know, Steve's only a couple of years younger than I am, Steve Novella, and, you know, most of us are in our 50s now, which I like to think is not being that old, but... It's old enough that you start to see the end of the line approaching, you know. (laughs) But uh, hopefully that end of the line is many decades hence. So, Dr. Gorski, can you please, uh, as we close out, you just instead of having people just search your name and and running into Uh the calamniations like Adams, where's the best place for people to find out about you and read your work? Well, there's science-based medicine, you know, which is just sciencebasedmedicineoneword.org. And there's Respectful Insolence, which is respectfulinsolenceoneword.com, you know, where I use the pseudonym of ORAC, which those in the UK might know what that is. Most people, when they search ORAC, come up with an entirely different thing, which is like a measurement of, uh, you know, the ORAC measurement, which is like, uh, I forget what it is, it measures uh, free radicals or something. <laughs> it's like, but uh, it was a... In any event, respectfulinsolence.com or sciencebasedmedicine.org. And you're quite... And Twitter, um, on, Twitter, it's Gorskon, G-O-R-S-K-O-N. All right, well, I'll be sure to put links in the show notes. And just right. out of interest, for someone who has written so much and writes so well, have you ever thought about writing a book or maybe are you currently in the... I have thought about it many times and I guess... Part of the problem is something would have to give in that, for instance, you know, I write so much on the blog that if I wanted to write a book, I would probably have to give that up for a while. And I I don't know, maybe maybe it's just difficulty changing ways, you know. Mm. 
a book is an entirely different beast. You know, the whole thought of putting together an outline and a pitch has <laughs> not, I've never managed to overcome the, the inertia, I guess. Yeah. That's the inertia is what I'm talking about. Well, I was just curious. Well, in any event, thank you so much for giving so generously of your time today. I've greatly enjoyed our conversation. And All right. No problem. And I wish you uh, thank you also for talking to me on the eve of the Memorial Day weekend, right? The long weekend. Sure. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Thank All you right. so much, David. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye.